my favorite time of the week and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you have chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you're uh, on your way to work, on your way home from work. No, no, what you're doing is you're walking through the neighborhood looking for Pokemons. I know you. This is the perfect Pokemon companion because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be. And that's completely free thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Squarespace, and Linode. They made that possible, bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the show about gaming in its many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles. And also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata. That's spelled with two N's and one T. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host slash nemesis. The guy who didn't want to start Pokemon Go until he finished Laura Croft Go and Hitman Go, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. I'm still trying to figure out Go. So once I figure out Go. (laughs) People have been trying to figure that out for thousands of years, Christian. (laughs) Once I get that, I'll move on to Pokemon. I don't know how you're going to – I mean, it's impossible. Hello, Jeff. Good to be here. Hello, everybody. Uh, It's going to be fun. going to be a fun show. Yeah, we got a lot of cool stuff to talk about, including the Pokemon's Go, uh, which is evidently taken over the world. And I tried to mention it as many times as I could in the opening, just for SEO, you know, because every other site right now is using Pokemon Go to to boost their traffic. So how does us? How does SEO work in an audio file? Uh, I haven't figured that out yet, but you know, as soon as we figure out Go for thousands of years, we'll move on to SEO. Well, we uh, can list it at least in the show description now that we've said the name of the game. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh man, tons of stuff to talk about. Really cool week of gaming news. Uh, not so much if you like, you know, the rest of the world, but gaming news, it's super good. Uh, and, uh, lots of cool stuff to talk about. We're going to have a really fun, uh, tabletop time segment this week. I know also bonus content coming at the end. If you're into, uh, board games, you're definitely not going to want to miss it. Even if you're not, I think this is a fascinating discussion I had with Jamie Stegmeyer who uh, is the designer of some incredibly interesting board games. Uh, So stay tuned for that. But we do have an awesome guest with us. You know that DLC is always your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But this week, we're excited because DLC stands for doing lots of comedy. Because from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, Second City Hollywood, The Laugh Factory, just to name a few, we have writer-comedian Greg Smith with us today. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, before I get into Pokemon Go, I've just been watching the 1999 Jay Moore movie Go over and over again. Very, very good. <laughs> Smart. Well done. Still yes. trying to like really wrap my head around that before I jump into the Pokemon world. Uh, the only thing I know about Go is that I'm not supposed to pass it. I'm supposed to go directly to jail. So. Yeah, and do not collect $200. <laughs> Which I think you do go to comedy jail for breaking a perfect rule of three, Jeff. So, um. <laughs> All right. Uh, two comedians on the show. Here we go. Uh, I'm that, was, that was five. That was five right there. <laughs> oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's get into uh, the awesome news of the week with Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration using our hashtag on Twitter, that's DLCSOTW, or by visiting our subreddit, which is really an awesome place. More folks giving away free games in the subreddit this week, which was pretty cool. You can find that at 5x5dlc.reddit.com. It's like a gambling site. Yeah, you're going to get something. We guarantee it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we are in no way affiliated with it. Um, Greg, you are a guest, so you get first pick of stories. Uh, what do you consider your story of the week? Yeah, what interests me the most is the uh, mini NES that's coming out that Nintendo's releasing uh, in November. It's like a it's like a old school Nintendo Entertainment System, but it fits in the palm of your hand. And I thought that was called my cell phone. Can I play all the NES games on my cell phone already? Can you? Do they have like old school NES games? Yeah, they have emulators. I think I don't know if they're entirely on the up and up, but uh, I was making a silly, silly witticism. You start with silly snark, and then Greg calls you out on it, yeah. and you're like, "I don't know." <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's not entirely legal, well, but yeah, no, this is this is big big news. I mean, here is a uh, a console announcement that I think is is pretty exciting. It's going to be sixty bucks. November eleventh, it's released. It's going to yeah, come. The price of like a game for a yeah. console, and it comes with uh, what are they saying? Fifty games on it. Thirty. Thirty. 30. Excuse me, um, including you know Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, Metroid, Donkey Kong, all the. The big ones you'd expect. Um, so you're gonna you're gonna buy one of these, Greg? Me personally, I, I, I've been struggling with this. I think aesthetically, it's really cool. I love the idea of having just the old school rectangle in my house. I love that it comes with the classic controller with just the A, B, start, select, D pad. That's all you need. But all of the games have been released and re-released in so many iterations on like the virtual console and stuff like that that I'm not 100% sure what like new value it adds, other than mm-hmm. sort of the retro walk down memory lane. Well, it certainly makes it easy to play it on your television. It comes with an HDMI cable to, That's nice. to play with you know, modern televisions. So there's no, none of that weird jumping through hoops that people have done to try to continue to you know, hook up their old legacy systems. Uh, it also has a save system, which the original NES did not have. Evidently, you'll be able to save your progress in these <laughs> games as you go. Growing up uh, in my basement where we played most of our video games, we actually had a chalkboard that we would write down just the crazy num- Oh, that's incredible. That's, that's awesome. Smart. We didn't yeah. we didn't we weren't that smart. We had scraps of paper that were inevitably lost. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, you know, they say it's going to come with one controller, but it will support multi multiplayer on the games that support it. And a second controller is 10 bucks, so they're going to keep the price low on all of this stuff. Um Christian, what do you think? Are you are you excited about mini NES? Uh, will I buy one? Probably. Will I buy multiple? Pro- I mean, is it a Christmas gift for my older brother who's not listening? Yeah, it probably like, unless he buys it for like I'm I'm buying these. Am I excited about it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I think and I'm I'm so I want more information. Like it seems like there's no way to add additional games. Um but it also appears to be a, a Wii internals or something like that. Cause all of the games on it are virtual console games. The retro controller that they're releasing, it has a, um, the Wii nunchuck plug is like the way it plugs in. And they say that you can plug it into the Wii mote to use it for, you know, your virtual console games that you already have. And so in terms of a need, I've pretty much bought all of these games on either the Wii or Wii U virtual console that I want, or I also own a, a Retron 5. So I, I have I have all of these things that I could want, but it's, I mean, it's, it's just like the N in Nintendo stands for nostalgia. You know, this is, I'm the guy that's wearing the limited edition NES Vans right now. Like, I have a Princess Peach Vans Nintendo hat. Um, I own Amiibo. Like, I am definitely buying it. I just, I wish I wasn't. Well, <laughs> I don't... 
I mean, I, I think I don't think you're wrong about the nostalgia aspect, but they're also the company that we've already referenced as being the first sort of mainstream AR company. I mean, the, Pokemon is in a space that is very forward thinking in a lot of ways. So it's not all nostalgia. Yeah, of course, there's some nostalgia for Pokemon, the IP, but I don't think you can just say that the N is only for nostalgia. Well, it seems like the difference between Pokemon Go and the NES Classic is that Pokemon Go has, starts with the foundation of nostalgia to kind of branch into this new space. Whereas this system, the foundation is nostalgia, and then what it's branching into is also nostalgia. <laughs> You're probably... I think that's accurate, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I... I, sorry, I think for me, this thing also is going to be the box. Like, I have most of my consoles in my office, and this box will be in the living room, and my wife and I and my three-and-a-half-year-old can play together. Like, this is the family introduction box where I don't need to be worried about firing up my Xbox. Like, my daughter and I have started playing Disney Infinity Toy Box mode together some, but there's always that fear that I have a save state or I put the console to sleep, and, like, I load back in, and it's just like... Last of Us Remastered pops up for a second and I'm like killing something and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's a smart it's a smart move. I think it's going to sell well. It's 60 bucks. It's going to be everywhere, right? If they can get these available, um, you know, if they're not if there's not a supply constraint, I think this is a big win for the holiday for them. W. Matthew is saying that I that it's uh, uh, Niantic who is, makes Pokemon. Yes, but it's Nintendo. It's it, it represents Nintendo. Someone there signed off on it. Yeah, because they've denied Nintendo's made a lot of dumb no's over the years, i.e. Skylanders. Um, right. This was a very someone said yes to this and that was a, a, to uh, Pokemon Go. And that was very, very smart of them. And I think this this story points to a larger discussion of Nintendo in general, in the sense that, you know, I, I kind of am baffled why this wasn't announced at E3. Like, <laughs> this is <kind laughs> right? a big deal, right? And And yet and. They, you know, maybe they were really super hyper focused on Zelda and wanted it to be the only bit of news coming out of that that uh, conference, and maybe that was a smart decision because everybody was talking about Zelda. But it seems that they had this percolating. It seemed like a it seems like an E three announcement, you know, or maybe they feared that because the NX wasn't at E three, they couldn't have this other console because then they would be ridiculed for you know having this instead. I don't know. It, but it's odd to me that that this wasn't part of that narrative then. But it also feels like Nintendo is making some really shrewd moves, and they're playing a game all to their to, the, to themselves, right? They don't care about E3. They're, they they handled E3 different than any other company has ever, right? And they are not really concerned about your holiday Wii U consumption, right? If they, if <laughs> no, you wanna, not at all. <laughs> you want to play something during the holiday? Sure, we'll give you something during the holiday. It's called All the Games That We Put Out in 1985. Uh, it, it's an interesting strategy. And it, alongside Pokemon Go, I mean, I, and Amiibos and, and this kind of thing, they're really carving out a completely different game plan. And I don't think you could possibly say that it's, I mean, Christian, you've criticized Nintendo a lot, and I, I don't think you can at this point. I think at, it, wait, these what? are smart moves. Wait, 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 what? These are smart moves. I, I mean, they are – every conversation about video games right now is about Pokemon Go and and this Nintendo NES. You know, it's, they are acting in a way that you have to acknowledge as being pretty smart. 
Sure. These are very smart moves, but this, okay. You just can't say that sentence. I can't, I can't do the pull quote. You can't criticize Nintendo anymore because you definitely can. I mean, these are, these are smart moves that will sell well, but they have also, they have made tons of mistakes over the years and continue to make tons of mistakes. So I, I think, and Greg, I know that you also, you know, have a joy for the original NES and, and some of the retro stuff we've talked about, you know, just between shows at UCB or whatever. But like between you and I, Jeff, I would argue that I am the bigger Nintendo fan of the two of us. And I think I give them props when props are due, but they they mess up a lot. No, I I, I misspoke when I said you can't criticize them. What, what I mean to say is that I think you are comparing them to a paradigm that they're not interested in, right? You are some of the criticisms you have made and we I, I'll include myself in that have made is because we're comparing them to Microsoft and Sony and the sort of uh, general consensus of how video game companies should behave or console manufacturers I should say should behave but, and and it feels like they're just even as far back as GameCube right they're just in a different world and I don't think go ahead I mean sorry uh, and, and Greg I want to get I want to get your take on this to see who you settle this fight. And if you side with Jeff, you're off the show. Um, that seems fair. <laughs> I, I, I agree with so much of what you're saying, Jeff, but I think the interesting thing, or maybe the enigma about Nintendo is that they say all that stuff, the blue ocean, they're expanding the audience. We don't care about the best graphics, whatever. But if you go back and watch their Wii U E3 press conference, that was very much Reggie saying, we get it. We messed up. Uh, we're fixing it. This is for you. This is gamers. This is HD gaming. Like we're back, baby. Like they do all this stuff that's different and weird, but then they come ran- running back to the hardcore quote unquote base whenever they can. So it's like, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, which I think is frustrating for that quote base gamer. Okay. Greg, what, what is your input? Yeah, it's, I, I, I think I guess, I sort of fall somewhere in the middle. I think I see both points. First of all, I I should just say, as far as like love for Nintendo goes, uh, as I talk to you at my desk, I have a plush of Waluigi staring at me. He just sits on my my desk drawer. Uh, that was the end of your. <laughs> that was the end of your bona fides. <laughs> Waluigi, drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like that's the end of any conversation. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's a love for Nintendo or a self hatred. <laughs> I'm not sure what Waluigi um, means. At this point, what is the difference? You know I mean? <laughs> um, so I, you know, my my love for Nintendo is deep and obscure, and uh, uh, it knows no bounds. But it does seem like it seems like they try to make these big risky moves that are interesting in theory. I remember when I first heard about the Wii with the motion controls and stuff like that. I was like so excited and intrigued and interested. And then when it comes out and it's a little bit waggle centric, uh, you hear about all these like interesting, dark, mature games coming out for the other systems and you go, oh, I kind of wish I could have that. And rather than doubling down on what Nintendo thinks is the right move to do or the risky, interesting move to do, they do, there does kind of seem to be a bit of well, let's meet in the middle. The next system will be HD and we'll have more sort of cross-platform games. But there's still going to be this weird thing about it. Like with the Wii U, there's still going to be like a honking Game Gear of a controller or whatever it is. Uh, So it seems like they maybe should either lean 
super into the we're the weird, risky, uh, avant-garde video game people. Or they should lean into, yeah, we're just like everywhere else. Uh, to be stuck in the middle feels a little strange to me. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like they're carving out their own place. I, you know, the real question for me, and I don't even know if we'll ever get an answer because I don't know how those how that data breaks down. But the real question for me is who's going to buy these these mini NESs, right? Is it going to be young people? Is it going to be people that weren't around in 1985 to play these things? Or is it going to be people like us who, who are like, I remember this stuff. Let's play it again. I suspect it's the latter. But Nintendo certainly intends to keep servicing a very young market. And, you know, come November, Pokemon Sun and Moon is coming out. And if, the, if Pokemon Go is any indication, and Pokemon Go is basically a commercial for Pokemon Sun and Moon, right? And to, if, if that's any indication, it's going to crush this this holiday season. And that's a bunch of 3DSs, and there's, what, 50 million of those out in the wild right now? Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like, are the young people going to be playing the NES is the question I want answered. I don't think I'll get that answer, but it's certainly an interesting place. And I'm, I'm fascinated and no longer sort of uh, as – I'm just trying not to criticize them on the basis of an old paradigm. That's all. I think oh, – also Jazz Galaxy in the chat uh, I think has a great statement. This, NES, this mini NES is Nick at Night for video games. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a great way to the, put it. Pretty succinct. I think the young people that will be playing it are people like my daughter that I, you know, I'm not making her play, but it's that age group. It's not the 10 year old that is already on Snapchat or doing whatever, or you know, Pokemon Go or Minecraft. It's that pre that age person. And I use it. It's nostalgic for me. So I'm going to introduce it to her. So it'll be her That's first introduction. Right? That's brilliant. I think so. Yeah, if it is the Nick at Night, right? Nick at Night is where I discovered Mr. Ed and uh, Laughin and stuff that was way before my time, but I can quote it now because Nick at Night introduced it to an entire new generation, you know? Uh, and I think that the generation after me got introduced to, to the Cosby show and, you know, all kinds of 80s sitcoms through Nick at Night. And if that's what this actually ends up doing, it's pretty shrewd. It's pretty shrewd. I think, I think it's brilliant. All they need, and hopefully they're working on it, is that next step in the ladder, right, to make them a lifer the way I am. So, like, my daughter plays this, and then when she's 10, what's the next Nintendo thing that keeps her going? And right now, for you know, it's Pokemon Go is the current uh, day example of that. But they need to stay... That's the hard part of doing the nostalgia thing is that you get the people in, but then if there's nothing new for them to keep them going, it's there's the cliff, right? Well, let's move on. Uh, we could talk about that forever, I think, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that how that progresses and what their holiday is like. As I said, I think Sun and Moon is going to just own everyone. Um, Christian, what is your story of the week? Oh, it wasn't going to be until the finals, until you saw Infiltration fight his way back through the loser bracket. It wasn't until you saw three perfect rounds. Evo 2016, Street Fighter V, holy moly. Imagine if the game had launched with a story mode like right before Evo. I know people wouldn't be that good, but that was the best commercial for Street Fighter V that I have ever seen. It was incredible. Every year, I think I'm like done with fighting games, and then Evo comes along, and it's usually Street Fighter. Usually, Street Fighter is the one that does it. Sometimes there's Smash that it's like, and I'm like, I'm back, baby, and I, you know, put my copy of the game in, and I, I suck for two hours, and I'm like, I'm done again. Um, <laughs> but holy moly, what Infiltration did um, 
was incredible. Incredible. Coming up through the loser's bracket, which, you know, is one death, you're done, double elimination going forward. And then to go through and, and have three perfect rounds and then playing, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, uh, he was playing as Nash, uh, and, and, it is just incredible. It was incredible, and and he beat yeah, Fudo, like, who's uh, his, a good player. It's not like two unknowns, his, like two newcomers. His awesome it was great. catchphrase at the end of download complete it was such a such a like badass smack talk. Oh man, that was really cool. I, I have to admit, I tuned in for the for the finals. I didn't watch a ton of stuff. I didn't watch the Tekken stuff for the Smash Brothers stuff, um, but I did watch the finals for Street Fighter. For some reason, Street Fighter is like that marquee game that you want just want to watch. And you're right, it delivered. It delivered on ESPN two. I mean, it, this was a big deal that it was uh, on television. I watched it on Twitch, but uh, it was on television. Um, so I'm not really sure how the television experience was. I, I didn't watch it on television, uh, but the fact that it was well, there, apparently they made uh, Fudo change uh, Mika's costume to her story tra- story costume because her default is like boobs on parade, yeah. and ESPN apparently was like, "Nah, dude." <laughs> I wish Capcom would learn from that a little bit, but. Um, you know, and and having Long Island, Long Island Joe as part of the the last few players, like having that storyline, this American player who, against all odds, is sort of over outperforming. You know what was expected of him. Uh, great storylines, really accessible matches, excellent commentary. My goodness, mm-hmm. guys doing a good mm-hmm. job. So yeah, did, did you get a chance to watch any of this, Greg? No, I actually missed this. Unfortunately, uh, I tend to agree with you about the badassness of the catchphrase that he he said at the end, download complete. Uh, to me, that almost seems like something a villain would say. <laughs> well, he had lost to Fudo earlier in the tournament, which put him down into the loser's bracket, and he worked his way back up. I mean, this is the this is the stuff of the underdog, right? This yeah, is, sure. And so, and he learned him. As Dan Trachtenberg used to say when we were playing Dark Souls, you must learn him. Uh, he learned him. He downloaded uh, that dude's playstyle and conquered it. And what a rad way to express that and just sort of like drop the mic. Speaking of dropping the mic, he dropped it hard. It was great. What He's I definitely. Oh, go ahead, Greg. Oh, sorry. Uh, what I appreciate about it, 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 to an extent, it's kind of it's not dissimilar to like. Uh, a major league baseball pitcher watching tape of the hitters he's going up against and quote unquote learning them. I just feel like when you do an interview with Justin Verlander afterwards and they're like, Oh, so how did you, uh, how did you face off? How did you pitch a no hitter against the pirates or whatever? Justin Verlander wouldn't say, I learned every mistake they made. (laughs) And he wouldn't be that cool and like verbose about it. I think there's something, something about the culture and language of video games makes people say cool that (laughs) what were you gonna say christian oh i was just gonna say i think it's incredible the way um in street fighter what makes it so compelling is that it's it's tying back to nintendo it's the nostalgia aspect that we all think we understand it so you watch it and everybody has the cursory level of kind of you think that you understand what they're doing but you don't of course because like counters and whatever and whatever but that i think is what makes it more accessible than smash or some of these other games um and it's remained popular for forever so um yeah uh you guys kind of took the the two biggest stories i think of of the week but i I will say my story of the week is one um that is a follow-up to something we've been talking about a lot and that is uh valve finally came out and addressed the various controversies and stories about 
the CSGO gambling scandals uh, and did it in a way that I, I think I predicted and, and uh, I'm glad to see, which is they're not standing for it. And, and as I sort of alluded to, I think, in previous weeks, it seemed like that was going to be the beginning of the end of all this kind of behavior. And it seems to be the case. Valve released a press release uh, early last week saying uh, we are going to begin sending cease and desist notices to the sites that are doing this stuff. Everybody out of the pool. It's over. Uh, no more of this stuff. We, you know, this is, this violates our end user agreement. We don't, we do not want to participate in this kind of behavior and we never gained any kind of financial benefit from it, which not directly, but indirectly you did. And I think they understand that, that they, they can't be a party to this, uh, however, indirectly. And I actually applaud them because, um, it needed to be addressed. It needed to be addressed swiftly and decisively. And I think they have done so. It sounds like they are, um, taking steps to, to bring their legal team onto this case and just shut this all down, which, you know, I don't know, maybe you guys disagree with me, but I think is a very good thing. I think having a rampant gambling community that targets kids that are very, very young below any state's legal gambling age is, uh, is pretty nefarious. And I think leads to some seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Yeah. Some bad behavior. So, uh, bravo to valve. Christian, do you have any other thoughts? No, I hope I hope it affects real change, and I hope it's not just lip, lip service. And I hope I know Twitch came in and said the same thing, agreeing restating what their API or not their API, their terms say as well. So hopefully, you see real change, and this stuff will still exist, of course, but you know it's not hopefully as prominent or as easy to do and as deceptive because it's uh, it's gross and it makes uh, gaming gross. Yeah, uh, one other quick news bits that hit this morning. Uh, the Xbox one S got a release date, August 2nd day after my birthday for, uh, the, at least the two terabyte version, which is the highest of the, the three models, the highest end of the three models that they are announcing. Uh, and that one's going to be three ninety nine. So it's not any cheaper really than, but it does have a much bigger hard drive than what you could get previously. Uh, it's going to start selling in the U S UK and Australia, uh, no, no dates announced for any other of the two versions, but those other versions are the 500 gigabyte and the one terabyte, um, which are uh, 349 and, and or excuse me, 299 and 349 respectively. Um, do you guys think this is going to sell well? What do you think? Xbox One S going to sell well, Greg? The one thing that uh, piques my interest about it is that it looks like it's going to be the first console released uh, that will... Uh, output in 4K, mm-hmm. which is very it's very appealing to me. Uh, about a year ago, Best Buy was having a fancy pants TV sale, and I got I got bamboozled and I got uh, swept away by the pleasures <laughs> and the promises. Of well, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have worn those pants because you, could, you wouldn't have been able to participate had you not worn them. That's a good point. <laughs> a really good point. Uh, so I bought a, a fancy 4K TV, and I've been kind of struggling to like justify that purchase with. 4K content that is out there. So the fact that this is, I think, the first video game console that promises that kind of stuff, that's pretty appealing to me. I don't know if it's appealing to sort of the mass entertainment audience out there, but that seems cool to me. Definitely. I'm I'm right there with you. I have a 4K television as well and really, really enjoy watching the 4K content that I can watch now through Amazon and Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be able to, you know, have 4K Blu-ray movies, although... 
And I think those, I don't know what the prices on those are yet. Uh, and I don't know exactly what kind of 4K content Microsoft is going to offer natively through the Xbox One or the Xbox Marketplace. But the idea that that it supports that it is very attractive to me. Is it more? Is it attractive enough that I'm going to replace my Xbox One? No, because I'm waiting for that sweet Scorpio. But uh, what about you, Christian? Yeah, I think it's a very smart console refresh. It's one of the best S's I've seen. The PlayStation 2 Slim, I think, is the best Slim ever made. That thing was the size of a postage stamp back then. It was incredible. Um, But the Scorpio announcement, I think, really shot this thing in the foot. It's a really pretty system. Um, I like it in white. I wish they did a black one. Uh, I imagine they'll do other colors. They've shown the Gears of War one. But seeing it in person at E3, like it is a very attractive system from and it gets rid of the the brick the power brick yeah which don't it's, underestimate that that's a huge deal that brick is annoying if you're trying to put it behind anything it's huge it, you can't push your your uh, bookcase against the wall or your uh, your um the stand you put my te- I put my television on right i want to push that thing all the way against the wall but that stupid brick is in the way it's it's yeah. frustrating it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it appears to be a very smart um, elegant redesign of a console that otherwise I would probably be itching to buy because I do get that tech lust every couple of years, you know? Um, but there's a Scorpio a year away. It's, it's crazy. I, it, that remains the crazy thing to me, but I, I do think people like Greg or people like the argument that I've heard for it is that it's a very cheap 4k Blu-ray player. So if you're looking to take that plunge, why not get the Xbox one S? And I totally understand that argument 100% because then you'll do the Scorpio later. You know, there's no rush to get into that per se. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, I do want to take a second and thank our sponsor Squarespace. My goodness. You've heard me talk about Squarespace for nigh on a decade now because that's how long I've been using them. Uh, I use uh, Squarespace to create and host my site, jeffcanada.com and have done for many a year. Uh, and it's because Squarespace makes it so easy, so easy to create a high end, beautiful looking website. Uh, it's secure. It's it's all drag and drop. What you see is what you get is how you design the, the, the site. You can start with great templates on their website, but then you can make it your own, make it not look like every other site on the web uh, and do so easily. And you can update it via mobile, you, you know, on the go when you're Pokemon going and you snap a great shot of a Charmander and you want to upload it to your website, whoop, just do it using the Squarespace app. It's so simple. Uh, all of their tools are really intuitive and easy to use. You can apply your uh, your cool HTML programming skills if you have them. But if you don't, Squarespace doesn't require it. it it's so easy to just make a website without having any of that knowledge because it's all just uh, how you would expect it to be. Just drag stuff around, place it where you want it to be. It's awesome. Plus, because you listen to our show, we're going to give you a discount The best thing about Squarespace is you can try all their tools for free, completely free. You don't even have to put in a uh, credit card. They're not going to automatically charge you at the end of a time period, anything like that. Build your site. Decide whether you want it to be a Squarespace site. They they are so confident in their tools. They'll let you do all that for free without even giving them a credit card. Uh, But chances are you're going to love it. It's so easy to use and so great. Uh, And then when you decide to sign up for Realsies... We'll give you a discount. So all you got to do is go to squarespace.com slash DLC. And then when you check out, use the promo code Jeff sent me. It's all one word, J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E. And you'll get 10% off your purchase. You'll show support for this show and 
uh, your appreciation that Squarespace values this content and sponsors us, which we have lo- we love, and and they've been around for so long. It's great. Uh, squarespace.com slash DLC. Use that promo code Jeff sent me. Create a website. Create something beautiful. Show off your Pokemon online. The best way. Squarespace.com slash DLC. All right, guys. Uh, let's talk about some of the video games we've been playing uh, and head right into the playlist. Ooh, Right, uh, Greg, what have uh, you been playing? What's on your playlist this week? Yeah, so I don't know about you all. I have been falling into a pattern lately uh, as far as video games go. I'm a huge fan of like story-driven, kind of dark, kind of mature one-player video games that feel more like interactive movies than, uh, than like actual just hard and fast video games. And I buy these... And then I get very busy in my life. And I, <laughs> I don't have a ton of time to like really inhabit the world as much as I want to. And when I do have time for video games, it tends to be, I just kind of want that like fix of like short-term joy. So I guess this is all a fancy way of saying that Uncharted 4 and The Wolf Among Us are my last two buys. And they have kind of been sitting collecting dust a little bit i find the time to like really get into the story every so often i'll play it for like four hours but mostly what i'm playing right now i just i just pop in mario kart 8 and i just enjoy the the pleasures of that game are just so it's it's endlessly rewarding and it, and it gives me what i need to kind of like relax from a from a busy life it uh, explains the waluigi plushie that's for sure indeed indeed uh, go ahead christian are you playing online, Greg, or are you still just kind of soloing and time trying? Like, I love Mario Kart 8. I'm almost the exact opposite. I get I get what you're saying. I, I prefer, like, what happened to me was Witcher 3, um, Skyrim, like that type of game, Metal Gear Solid 5. Like, I love, I love the idea of those games, and but I always want to carve off, like, four hours. You know, I'm going to sit in, and I'm going to be this world, and I'm going to get lost, and I'm going to let myself adventure. There, i.e. I never play it because I never have four hours to do that. Yeah. So Uncharted or Wolf Among Us is that compromise I make with myself oh, where yeah. it's here's a great I'm getting the narrative. I'm not out to worry about quote unquote missing something. Um, I'm going to see everything there is to see. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. And I can play for an hour and then get back to my life. And then Mario Kart. I, I love Mario Kart 8. It is so beautiful and so well designed. I think the tracks are phenomenal. I wish there were more, but that's another story. Um but I find like what keeps me going into that is I'm of two minds where it's either only five minutes, which I feel like doesn't, I'm so lazy. It doesn't justify turning on the console or dear God, it became four hours and I should have been playing metal gear. <laughs> right. Right. Like, do you, how do you sit down and play Mario Kart? Are you an online guy? Are you time trialing? Does it suck your life away? Should you just have played uncharted four anyway? Or do you really limit yourself to just two races? Uh, typically lately I have been playing online a lot, which boy, Hadi, there's no more humbling experience than to like, think you're good at Mario Kart and then go online <laughs> and then realize, Oh no, I don't, I don't know anything. Uh, but as far as like being a time suck goes, I find that when I'm by myself and I'm playing online, it is easier for me to limit myself because 
the only stimulus I have going in front of me is the video game itself. Where I find that Mario Kart sucks me away is if I'm in a room with three of my closest friends and we're all playing multiplayer together. And then it's like, oh man, this is just, we're just having fun hanging out with each other. The video game is just sort of the conduit for friendship. And then we play for like five to six hours at a time and I never want to end. So when I'm by myself, it's it's easy enough for me to kind of have portion control, I would say. Do you feel guilty at those friend sessions? Like, does, do, do you, if you, let's say you have that and your three friends come over and you, you know, lose the night to Mario Kart 8, does that feel different than after a show, you and your friends go to, you know, Birds or whatever, like the bar, restaurant, hangout of choice, and you lose the night that way? Does one have a different stigma for you? That's an interesting question. I think... I try not to let it. I try to put it in the perspective of, in a way, maybe just like hanging inside and playing video games is like a, I don't want to say healthier choice than like going out and having a few drinks and staying out until two in the morning and getting back kind of groggy. But it it, it taps into a very simple kind of fun, one that I think is underrated in an increasingly complicated adult's life. So I, I, I try not to have self-guilt about that kind of thing. I try to like, you know, it's necessary to have nights like that sometimes. This, this really leads into a, a topic that I've been wrestling with and, and thinking about for a couple of weeks, trying to decide whether I'm going to bring it up on the show or not. Uh, and, and this is such a good lead into it. I, can't help myself at this point, but, um, we did it, Greg, we did it. No, no. You, well, I mean, Christian, you've been playing a lot of overwatch and I think this applies to Mario Kart eight, maybe a little less so, but any of those online games, you know, obviously I, I spend an inordinate amount of time playing heroes of the storm. Listeners of the show know that. Uh, and there is no other part of my life where I am thrust into intimate contact with strangers more. I live in Los Angeles, I'm in my car or I'm in my house, right? I don't, I don't have to ride public transportation. I don't, I'm not out walking on the street very often. Although, you know, Pokemon Go has changed that a little bit. But uh, I love playing Heroes of the Storm. And one of the quotes that I live my life by is, a moment enjoyed is not wasted. But too often I find myself coming away from a match of Heroes of the Storm going, that was torturous. That was – there was <laughs> – I did of- not enjoy any of that. A moment enjoyed is not wasted, but I just spent 30 minutes playing a game and came away from it feeling angry, frustrated. Uh, is that only when you – I want to I I, I keep going, but I want to pause and dive in to see why – is it only when you lose or even winning games you get that sensation? No, it's, it's when I lose, but it's not because I lose. It's how I lose. And almost okay. always the how I lose in these particular situations comes from the butting up against other human beings who don't care or are actively trying to play against the, the team or – are doing things that are just meant to antagonize or are obstinate or just the, 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 the mechanics of dealing with strangers and forming teams with strangers. Cause I solo queue quite often. And of course I know a lot of people are going to say the solution to this is only play with your friends. Okay. But the, the amount of times I want to play this game does not equal the <laughs> amount of times my friends want to play this. Game. Okay? Uh, and, and it's led me to actually contemplate like, may, should I stop playing this? 
because too often it affects my mood. It puts me in a terrible mood. I'll come away and my wife is like, what's the matter? And I don't want to go, I just dealt with a complete a-hole on a video game because she's going to be like, what? You know, like it, it, that is not a a real life problem. And yet it does affect me because I can't believe people behave in the way they believe. And I am too <laughs> – what is the word? I don't know. I, I'm I'm too something to be able to let it go. I, I I can't believe the world works this way. And the fact that people are such awful things to each other and go into a fun environment and on, only to ruin it for other people bothers me. And I speak out and then that gets me into more trouble. It Again, I was hesitant to bring this up because I think it points to a lot of my own failings as a person, but I throw it out to you guys uh, as a conversation piece. Well, I think it's interesting. And Craig, I'd love to get your, your take on it. You, you know, do more improv than I do. And as you are in a company, do you still accompany uh, musical improv as well, Greg? Yes, I do. So for people that don't know, Greg is on stage playing a keyboard while a group of funny people make stuff up out of thin air. And you are also making things up, playing along with them as the music matches what they do, or you lead them a certain way with, you know, how you play the song or the pace or the rhythm or whatever you're doing. It is beautiful and everyone should go and see it. And at the end of the show, hopefully Greg can tell you where to see all of his stuff because it's amazing. But what I bring that up because I'd love to get your take on, you know, what Jeff was talking about in the sense of, you know, playing well with others and, and watching an improv or in comedy or just in life, this idea of the spoiler or the rotten egg or, you know, does it, what if the person who's ruining it for you, Jeff, that's how they're having fun. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is. I think there is a, and I don't mean to jump on to Greg, but, uh, I think there is a fragile a fragile agreement that is established at the beginning of a match, especially when you're playing ranked as I do often. The fragile agreement is we're all here for a common goal. Then we are all – and everybody thinks that they are a special snowflake to use uh, Kyle Ferguson's uh, phrase from Into the Nexus. Uh, and, and everyone thinks that they are the best and everybody else is ruining it for them. And as soon as something happens – that is not positive to the team and flies in the face of that fragile agreement. And someone is identified as being um, counter to the team's goal in fighting starts. And once that starts, everything is off the table and then people act out. I, I think rare is the, is the moment when someone starts a match with the intent to destroy it for the team. I did have that last night. A guy killed himself 18 times in a row from the start that happens, but it's very rare, and it's not really what I'm talking about. That is like, okay, whatever, bad egg. It's not bad egg. It's bad interpersonal dynamics that almost always happen. Either you're doing well, or there's a complete breakdown of the system. And and I think it speaks more to how we interact with each other as human beings than it does at, to say, oh, bad eggs, or that's just how this guy has fun. Well then, I mean, I think that is the same question. Sorry, Greg, I'm going to make you the expert on this, and I'm not. I'm not saying you're the, the voice of of improv or sociology, but you know, you've done a, you do a lot of shows at some of the best theaters in LA, and you also do indie shows. And indie shows are it's kind of like pickup basketball for the layman. It's you know, 
people coming in and playing, having fun, but it's not what you'd see at UCB or um, the PAC or IO or Second City or whatever. So how what is your take on this group dynamic, you know, in your video game experience versus sitting on stage with the keyboard or playing with people in other life lessons that we can take from that? Can we fix this for Jeff or for anybody? Or is, are we, just, are we just doomed to this misery? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, 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 I want to start with a question to you, Jeff. Do you consider yourself an overly empathetic person? 100%. Yes, I consider myself an overly empathetic person too. And what that means, not to like project your thought patterns onto you, and if I'm wrong, certainly correct me. For me anyway, it means I spend a lot of my time thinking about why a person behaves in a certain way or thinking about why they do a thing. So in this case, maybe maybe part of what's giving you anxiety and discomfort and causing you to have strife it's just this like un this unknowable mystery of like why would a person knowingly want to kind of ruin this fun experience for everyone um and because there's no real answer for that maybe that is what is kind of causing your empathetic brain to kind of short out and we got a little bit is that these other people clearly aren't viewing the world in the same open-minded want to get to know the source of people's behaviors kind of way. They're viewing it in a very like, not selfish, but a very looking out for number one kind of way. Um, And as that relates to improv, improv is kind of similar with multiplayer video games in that it's lots of disparate people coming together for a common goal. And when it's the most fun, it is when everyone discovers one idea. It's when you have eight people playing one comedic idea when it is just magical. When you have eight people playing eight different ideas on stage and kind of trying to compete against each other over what is the funniest way or what will provide the most personal like shot of dopamine or, or endorphins or whatever they whatever weird nonsense they get out of performing comedy, that's when it becomes fractured and sloppy, and I, as a pianist, think to myself, boy, Hadi, I'm in a, in a black box theater at 11.30 at night on a Friday. I could be doing anything else in the world. And instead, I'm watching people kind of fight over each other, over what's supposed to be joyous and uh, a beautiful experience. And there's an improv guru named Will Hines. Who is, yeah, buddy. Yeah, he's the best. He's got a book out. He does have a book out. It's called How to Be the Greatest Improviser in the World. I haven't read it yet. I hear it's amazing. It's I'm like a quarter through. It's amazing and self-serious in all the right ways. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, he has a blog where he answers anonymous questions about improv. And I think one of the questions I think about often is someone asks him, what do you do when someone on your team is quote unquote that guy? When you're playing with someone who seems to only go for selfish goals or seems to sabotage the team for their own gain. And I don't know if this is applicable to video games, but his advice was you have to go to them. I think it's completely applicable to video games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, just for the sake of it's your a own tough thing to do though. Yeah, of course it is because you, you kind of know you're, you're a very well-rounded, mature, empathetic person and you know how this kind of should be going. Well, also it, there's a part of me that feels like that rewards the behavior. If we're all going to yeah. conform to, to, to you, that means I am tacitly endorsing your behavior. Uh, and I don't, I don't intend to do that. I, I, that's, that's the 
fault of my own personality is that I want to be Captain America, right? I want to stand up and say, no, your behavior is unacceptable. Uh, and that never helps. <laughs> I get, I mean, I get that desire though. I totally get it. Um, yeah. I f- uh, and also, you know, again, this is, we're going way too long on this cause there's lots of really interesting other fun stuff to talk about. And I regret, I'm kind of, no, I don't regret, but you're being, you're doing it already. You're being too pathetic. But, uh, the, <laughs> I also, I do, I've done a lot of reading about the Dunning Kruger effect, which I think is at play here too. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but that's the, the scientific study that points out that the le- the less the less good at something you are, the more good at something you think you are, uh, <laughs> and the more the better you get at something, the less good you think you are at it. And I think that's completely at play. And I and I'm sure I'm as much a victim or I'm much a um, culprit in that as well because you know half the time when I'm like this person is behaving in such a stupid way, don't do that. Every the whole team is. I'm the special snowflake who feels like I know better because I'm better at this game than you. Anyway, all things to guard oneself against and maybe not exactly in the purview of the show, but I think it's totally appropriate for the show, especially on whatever day it is in July right now when what are the new games that are out? Like this is this is the uh, if anyone is angry that this is where the show is going, stop it. This is great. <laughs> I could do this all day. Uh, well, you did play uh, a game that I have raved about at length, Christian, uh, and that is called The Story About My Uncle. Uh, are you, did you, you never played this originally when I was like naming it my game of the year and all those things? No, I remember you raving about it and I kept waiting for it to come out to consoles, which it never did. And I had, you know, I could play games on my old computer but not um reliably you know if that makes sense like i could play games but i was always kind of waiting like oh this will come to consoles or i'll get this um later so it was my final steam summer sale purchase this year i did super hot rise and a story about my uncle and um i played maybe 90 minutes of it it's on my twitch which is twitch.tv christian spicer and then my youtube as well which is christian spicer 713 and i I understand, I think, what you love about this game. It did not strike me the way it did you. I know I'm also playing it two years after it came out, so that might be um, part of it. But I, I, what I, my big takeaway from a story about my uncle, which if you know nothing about it, um, it it's kind of, without spoiling anything, because it's at the very beginning of the game, it has a little bit of that, um, oh gosh, well, my, a princess bride approach where, you know, you are telling a story to someone, reading a story, telling a story to uh, another character in the game, and then you are playing that story that you are telling. And you get this really cool suit that allows you to shoot um, like an electric lasso and swing around this world of floating islands and you explore and unravel this story. Um, as you go along and it's really to me all about the swing mechanic and it's a puzzle platformer not in the sense of um, you know portal but puzzles in terms of linking your swings together like how how do you get from this platform to this other platform I guess that's just a platformer (laughs) it's not a puzzle but um, it requires a little bit of dexterity to you know successfully swing from one thing to another and and figure out the right path and my big takeaway from this game is Wow, I wish a company like Valve or Play Dead, which I know this is not the genre they make at all, or Nintendo, but like a company that puts that extra polish on their game, the way Limbo and Inside are just, you know, perfection in terms of what they're doing, or Portal and what it did, or every Nintendo game ever made, more or less. 
uh, I want someone to take this idea of the first person swinging game and put that perfection on it. Because the story about my uncle to me was lacking that last 10%. Well, we call it the gravitas. By a very small team. Uh, 100, I think yes. what did you pay $2 for it or something? Oh, sure. No, 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 no. 100% true. Um, but it also was 90 minutes of my time. Right. Like, I'm not trying to poo poo the game. I am going to play no more of it. There are other games that I would rather play. I don't regret the time I spent with it. Um, I love the idea. I love the concepts. My critiques of the game are for a game that is telling a story. I found the voiceover to be very bland and stilted and not amateurs. It's an amateur voiceover artist. Yeah, it does not. It does not pull you in. It also has that um, uh, heavy rain approach, where it sounds like non-native English speakers speaking English for maybe the first time. I almost rather would have had it be their native tongue with subtitles. And then the swing mechanic, I could never quite get my head around. Like the momentum didn't feel there mm-hmm. for me. I, I didn't connect with it the way I think the way you describe driving games. Like you don't have that seat of your pants feeling, even if you're in first person or cockpit mode. For me, there was some disconnect about the swing, the way I wasn't Spider-Man shooting a web and pulling it and having that inertia and that momentum. It was like this laser beam that pulled me forward and I saw wind lines go past my face, you know, to say I was going fast, but I never felt it the way I wanted That's to. That's too bad uh, because I, I feel the exact opposite of that. And I wonder if you had played more, uh, there, you unlock other sort of uh, variations on on that and you, you're sort of asked to do things in a slightly different way. And the game progresses in, I think, an interesting way. If it didn't catch you now, probably wouldn't have caught you then. But uh, it's a shame to me because I, I adore it for precisely the opposite reason that you didn't like it i thought so that, it did all that stuff really exceptionally well especially for such a small you know team and small budget game yeah that's where i want to see someone put that what i would call the extra 10 percent on it and then release it on vive yeah well yeah well there is a game on vive kind of like that but uh, not nearly as good um yeah, what have you been diving? You have some newer games. I mean, I feel like this is. Uh... Well, I mean, I kind of used up my time talking about thing. I want to talk uh, use my time in the VR segment because I really have some exciting stuff to talk about there. But I do want to ask Greg if you're playing uh, Pokemon Go. Uh, no, I'm actually not playing Pokemon Go. But uh, I this past couple weeks I experienced a very kind of negative interaction involving Pokemon Go, and then I saw a very positive interaction involving Pokemon Go mm. that I could go into if we have sure, go ahead. the time. Um, I I have a very good friend who is really into Pokemon Go right now, and he it's all he's talking about right now, and it's giving him a lot of joy, and I have nothing but happiness for him. I'm happy it's giving him joy and wonder in the world and stuff like that. I met up with him for coffee a couple weeks ago and i was going through some personal stuff that i wanted to kind of talk about with my friend i wanted to have a heart to heart and he kind of wouldn't stop talking about pokemon go (laughs) oh no to the point where he was putting his phone out in the middle of the table while we were talking so he could see if pokemon were coming near him and that really bothered me. It made me feel like, ugh, this video game is ruining society. It's making people not listen to each other. And then about a week later, I went and saw the new Ghostbusters movie. And before the movie, there was a family in front of me. It was uh, two parents and a daughter. And all three of them had their phone out. And they were playing Pokemon Go together with such relish and such joy. 
and such like camaraderie that I, growing up, I never really experienced with my parents regarding video games. It was always kind of a, this is a thing that Greg and his brother do. We as the parents will not have anything to do with it. So to see an entire family come together, it like totally erased any bad feelings I had about it. So I'm happy for those who play it and enjoy it and uh, don't ignore their friends while they play it. Uh, along those lines, we got a really cool email that I wanted to read. Uh, this was sent to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Uh, it comes from Eric T. from St. Louis, Missouri. He writes, uh, Hey there, Jeff and Spicer. First time writing into DLC, but after listening to uh, yesterday's episode, I had to share about my first weekend with Pokemon Go. For starters, I'm 21, born in 95, so I was all about Pokemon from day one. My friends and I at Mizu, the University of Missouri, had been following Go for ages and couldn't have been more excited. The Thursday it came out, I drove back to campus and met up with all of my friends. Over the course of that weekend, Thursday night to Sunday, we were out for hours. We ended up walking a total of 26 miles across our town, living out a dream we'd all shared since our childhoods. It was Friday night, probably 10.30 p.m., when a magmar pops up on my radar. I alert our group of over 10 people, and we tracked this thing down in a flash. Closer and closer we got. Three footsteps, two footsteps, one footstep. It was right on our quad on our campus. My friend and I started sprinting, screaming, Magmar, Magmar! People from all around here and start running with us. Oh, crap, Magmar? It looked like a scene out of a Rocky movie, complete with strangers running with us, all trying to catch the rarest Pokemon we'd seen thus far. We finally all caught it and hung around afterwards chatting, comparing Pokedexes, and just enjoying each other's company. This game has an incredible communal feeling and succeeds on every level in bringing people together. I made a few new friends this weekend alone just through this app. I think the release of Go is vital for the gaming community, and I hope it stays around and keeps doing what it has been doing so well. Gotta catch them all, right? Keep up the great work. Podcast keeps getting better and better. That's Eric T., from St. Louis, Missouri. I just was so charmed by that. I thought that was cool. And really, that's gaming at its best, right? Bringing people together. thought that was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I mean, that's the perfect one, right? Not when it's like 100 people and they stop all the traffic in Santa Monica. <laughs> I saw some fun <laughs> videos online this week of like Central Park and people getting, you know, a rare Pokemon comes up and it's just this like stampede of insanity. It really is... Uh, just a, a moment, a cultural moment we're witnessing with regard to video games. It's pretty interesting. The, my anecdote to that is um, since it's been out, I've done enough standup and it is, I hate to say this and just be dismissive of it, but you know, the, uh, the sweet Steve Buscemi, like what up kids um, yeah. there, I have witnessed uh, probably five to seven, I would say not in they, they don't play video games. I know what they're doing, but like that's been their opener. And it's just, it's become, I'm rolling my eyes at Pokemon go jokes now at shows because it's like the, I'm hip to this young audience. Uh, I walked on stage. Oh, is there a comedy show here? I'm just, I was just trying to catch this Pika dude. And like, they don't know the character, but they, like, that's how big of a, on in the zeitgeist, this thing yeah, is where it's like, the, kids. it's yeah, whatever. exactly. It's yeah. crazy. And it's, 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 it's insane. All right, um, I want to uh, I want to talk a little VR. The the VR bumper voting has gotten uh, heavy. It's awesome over on our uh, subreddit five by five dlc dot reddit dot com. 
Uh, I have to apologize to Brian Boggess because I said his name wrong last week because I didn't have it in front of me. But he is the current front runner with uh, the heavy metal Christian Spicer breakdown, which is how we will start our VR segment this week. Thanks, Brian Boggess. Jeff's VR segment. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Jeff's VR segment. VR, VR, VR. Jeff's VR segment. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Jeff's VR segment. VR, VR, VR. All right. Um, big, 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 big week in VR. Uh, a game that uh, you've heard me talk about before because I had a, the opportunity to play a, a very early um, non-public version. It's called Raw Data. Christian, I believe this is the game that sort of sold you on the Vive, right? If I had room for a Vive, I would have walked out of the you know proverbial store with one after playing this game. It's incredible. Guess what? Everything that you played in Raw Data is now different and now better. Hold on one second. Hello, realtor. <laughs> Sell the house. Need a new one. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it finally went into official early access. So it's still not out. And a lot of the functionality is is disabled. A lot of the, the things in the game that will be there when it's officially released are not present in the game. But my goodness, what a leap in quality this game has taken. And it was already the game that I would sort of put people in VR through to get them sold on the concept. Um a friend of the show, Rob Crackle from uh, Naughty Dog, he, this is the game that sold him on the Vive. And again, these are all pre-release versions. This is still pre-release. It's early access, but it's now actually a game. So before, this is the game that I described as being that moment in movies where the two heroes find themselves, you know, the two buddy cop guys find themselves pinned down and there's bad guys all around them and they have to stand back to back and so this is that, right? This, that was the original version is, is you're standing back to back. You kind of, but it didn't have the net code, right? It only supported land play and who's got two vibes. I, you know, I got a chance to try it at an event where they had two vibes set up and it was cool, but I didn't get a chance to do that at home because they didn't have the net code installed in the game yet. But still it was cool. It was waves of enemies coming at you. had all these different weapons. You're trying to download this data in this futuristic place that you're infiltrating while fending off their, their attack robots that are the defense systems for this, you know, this future place. Uh, Super fun. Tons of accuracy of the weapons. Really cool mechanics. You have a sword on, the, on your back that you can grab anytime and do melee attacks. All that's cool. Now, the game is like a full-on game. There's character classes. Two of them are in the game so far. There are more to come. One is your pistol-wielding hero guy uh, who's got a pistol on one hip, a, uh, a extra clips on the other hip. But you can also level up and, and purchase new abilities like he's got a charged shot where you hold the trigger down and you shoot this very powerful bullet out of it and he also has like a rapid fire that you can trigger by sliding your thumb on the thumb pad and it'll like go and shoot really you know rapidly uh and then later on in the game you can upgrade to um a much more rapid automatic reload because before what you would have to do is reach your hand down to your right hip or for me right because i'm left-handed reach your hand down to your hip grab a clip and physically put it into the to the base of the gun in your other hand. But when you up while not breaking your expensive, I remember I clicked the controllers together once and I was like, row. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. So the other thing is now there is net code and you can play together, which is 
I can't even express to you how much fun because you have, you know, a full on avatar that you're inhabiting. You, it's got voice communication built into the vibe so you can talk to each other and you now also can zip around the environment by teleporting. But the teleportation works unlike any other game I've seen where it kind of like you point to where you want to teleport and it, and it pushes you fast there rather than just blinking you there. It, it feels a lot like Tracer from Overwatch. Which made Batman had a little bit of that. Like it wasn't as pronounced as this scene, yeah. but that's what they talked about wanting to do is that it feels like you're whooshing yeah. over to right. the place. Uh, which made me think like Overwatch in VR can work. This game is fast and at no point did I get um, motion sickness at all, even a little bit. I played for many hours at a time with friends. Uh, oh, the second character class is a cyber ninja, they call it, which is basically a Jedi because you have a, a – sword that you can pull from your back and then click on and it energizes you can throw that sword at enemies and it spins away from you and then comes back like a boomerang back to your hand you have a jumping attack that's just like area effect attack right which you would think would make you want to hurl in vr because you literally push a button and you leap up into the air and come slamming down hitting an area of effect but it works. It doesn't make you sick. It is so satisfying. There's a bunch of like glowing size, you know, like um, Raphael from the Ninja Turtles uses size that huh. are like in the periphery of the area that you're coming down and slamming on. And there's a whole bunch of new bad guys. There's exploding robots that you can't be next to when they explode. There's like data centers that you have to protect. There's new levels. There's a level that takes place all in the dark. And there's these like little crawling half robots that come scurrying at your feet and grab onto you. And so I find myself like yelling at my friend. I was playing with Alex Albrecht and I played with Brian Brushwood. Yelling at my friend, shoot him off me, shoot him off me. You, you know, it is the fantasy of being inside a video game done perfectly. I, you know, the, the satisfaction of like charging up a a shot with my charge gun and shooting it in a line of robots. And it goes through multiple of them because it's a charge shot or taking my sword and slicing and dicing a couple of bad guys and then tossing it at a flying drone above me. It, it is absolutely thrilling. You get sweaty. You're running around. It is, I'm telling you guys, it is the vibes killer app. I mean, I've loved vanishing realms and call the star seed. I think those are, proof of concept that these vibe games are going to be amazing. This is the killer app. This is put anybody in it that likes regular video games, hardcore gamer, put them in this. The the game looks amazing. The graphics of just like your hands, you're wearing these awesome cybernetic gloves. When you look down at your hands, it makes me feel like just loot in different glove designs, armor for my gloves, for my hands, for my virtual hands is going to be so rad in virtual reality because you can hold it up and look at it really close to your face. It's so dude. I can't tell you how great this game is. And also it's the first pure VR game to crack steam's top 10 of, uh, uh, in sales. So it's already a huge success. It's this is game. Raw data. Amazing. I look forward to coming over and the only bummer is we, we need is you to try it while I'm in my vibe. Like we need to play together rather than just 
you try it single player or you try it with like somebody else. I want to play with you because I can go to Alex's. Yeah, I can make that, that happen. That experience, <laughs> Alex is like, you haven't come over in two years. Shut up. Where's your vibe? <laughs> uh, people are asking how much space you need. Uh, not a ton. You have to have enough to sort of flare your arms around, especially with the sword. Cause you literally throw your arm and uh, Alex was playing. He's like, I, I'm getting, I'm getting like tennis elbow from throwing the sword so much. Um, so you have to be able to not smack your arms into stuff, but because it's a teleportation game, you don't actually have to run through the space, right? There's not a ton of running around movement that you need. You can, that is a way to move through the space, but the teleportation works so well. And I found myself like, shoot, 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 teleport, shoot, 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 teleport. Oh, they're shooting at me. Oh, by the way, you can reflect their laser beams back at them with the sword, like a Jedi. Uh, it, it is... It's a dream come true, guys. It is. It is so so fun. Greg, have you have you VR'd? I have not as of yet VR'd, and I got to say, up until that uh, passionate review of this game, it, it never seemed like something that appealed to me because, and you touched on this a little bit. I am the kind of person who gets very dizzy, disoriented, motion sickness easily. It's part of why I can't like go and see three D movies. It just my my brain and my stomach just kind of say, "Well, you're on your own." Blah. Uh, so to hear <laughs> to hear that uh, this exciting game does all of this stuff without making you feel motion sick, yeah, I'd, I'd love to try. I am somebody that tends to be pretty sensitive as well, and not perhaps not that sensitive. I don't have a problem with 3D movies, but I tend to be fairly sensitive with that stuff. And I not once, not a shred of it. And I am flinging myself around this environment, teleporting, shooting guys, getting into position, flinging my head up because uh, there's drones above me that I need to shoot down. It it is wild. It is fast paced. There is nothing that is sort of less than about this experience when compared to a first person shooter overwatch style experience. I, I really feel like this and, um, um, Battle Dome that I talked about a couple of weeks ago are proof that these kinds of competitive multiplayer shooters are going to work really, really well in VR. And it's going to be so much fun to watch as an eSport. It's going to be so much fun to participate in because people are physically doing the things rather than just sitting blankly and moving a mouse very you know, minutely. Uh, it's amazing. You need to stop being so enthusiastic about VR so VR can hire you. Like uh, Victor Roberts can give you a call and be like, Jeff, we got a job for you. Because you would be, you're not only the president of VR Club for Men, you're also a member. Like you, you are the, the gen, genuine, you're the Bob Ross of VR. Well, you know, like, you know. There was a thread in, on the subreddit this week about me being too positive about VR and therefore my my opinion for it is uh, invalid because all I ever do is talk about how great it is. Uh, you know, I addressed this a little bit last week of the fact that I pick and choose the best experiences, but uh, there's nothing manufactured or uh, exaggerated about my reaction. I can tell you. Every person, you know, read the tweets that I tweet exchange that I had with Alex Albrecht and Brian Brushwood after we played it. All three of us were like bouncing off the walls about how much fun raw data was to play together. This is not an atypical response to this experience. And you can feel free to throw my opinion out with the bathwater if you like, but 
I'm being. Well, you can way. watch me, Mr. Cynic. Like I have my first time with your Vive playing the old version of Raw Data on the YouTube, and I come out of it saying, "This is the game." Yeah, and, and dude, it looks so much better now. Everything is so much more developed, and the fact that there's going to be like unlocks and achievements and leveling up, and un- you have to unlock new levels and stuff. It, it has all those hooks there. It feels like a really cool fiction. How much is it? Uh, right now, it's on sale. I think it's thirty-two bucks. <sighs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, the other the other uh, VR experiences that came out today, Trials on Tatooine came out, which is the Star Wars uh, experience I talked about playing at GDC, I think I did, um, which is pretty amazing. They're giving that out for free, Lucasfilm. It's very short, but you get to wield a lightsaber and be, you know, with R2-D2 underneath the Millennium Falcon as Han Solo is talking to you. So pretty amazing. What rig? Hmm? What rig? What do you mean what rig? What are you playing it on? Uh, it's, a, it's a Vive game. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, NVIDIA also released another free thing called their VR Funhouse, which is pretty amazing too. This is a tech demo, but a pretty impressive one. Uh, it's all about physics in VR, but you are standing in front of a you know old-timey carnival um, – the you know, t- carnival games t- type of place. It's like a wood wood planks, you know, like you're on the boardwalk and you walk up and you're going to, you know, uh, play um, the water thing where you shoot the mouth of the, to the clown and it expands a balloon, right? Has that, it has whack-a-mole, it has an archery thing where you light things on fire. It's got uh, skeet shooting, all kinds of stuff. But the whole point of it is to show the NVIDIA tech for all these different um, uh, physics application so it's got like fur on the heads of the little whack-a-mole guys and it's got realistic fire burning stuff and it's got breakable really fun you like break all of these um pots and and plates and stuff as you shoot them with your little pistol at the carnival and it all breaks really realistically it's meant to really showcase the the new 1080 and 1070 cards but i'm playing it on a 980 ti on the lowest on the low settings it really still looks very impressive the water you like spray these goo guns and the the liquid effects are incredibly realistic uh and again free so uh really really cool experiences on on vive this week three of them um that that i just i'm so pleased to be an early adopter it's really fun okay enough vr talk i know i know uh, let's move on. I think it's going to be a really fun uh, uh, tabletop time segment. But first, I want to thank our other sponsor, Linode. Linode is a hosting company offering high-performance Linux servers for all of your infrastructure needs. Linode has it all. Lightning quick servers in the cloud, a super-fast 40 GPS network, automated backups, node balancers, managed services, guides with step-by-step instructions, a simple but powerful control panel, 99.9% uptime, 24-7 support experts, and all the tools you need to get the job done right the first time. And now, Linode offers 2 gigabytes of RAM for only 10 bucks a month. Over 400,000 customers trust the Linode platform, including 5x5. 5x5's infrastructure is happily hosted on Linode. And getting started is easy. Just pick a plan, choose your favorite Linux distro, and pick one uh, from one of eight data centers in America, Europe, and Asia. Just visit linode.com slash 5x5 today to support this show and use promo code 5x5 for a $10 credit. linode.com slash 5x5. Simple, powerful, reliable. All right, guys. Let's carve out a little bit of tabletop time, shall we? Right now, right now. 
Greg, you've been playing some uh, board games. Uh, actually, before that, before I get to that, I have some fun uh, board gaming news. This is a big week for board games because the Spiel des Jahres was, uh, was announced, the winners, uh, which is the most prestigious board gaming award of the year. Uh, this is the German board gaming award, the oldest board gaming award, and uh, very, very prestigious. It really, winners of this award can go from... Uh, you know, selling modestly to selling incredibly. It, it, it really means a lot. And there were some heavy hitters, uh, games you've probably heard me talk about on this show before that were nominated for the Kenner Spiel. So there's three uh, categories for the Spiel des Jahres. One is the regular Spiel Award, which is uh, mainly meant to be a family game, uh, accessible to families. There's the Kinder Spiel, which is the uh, made-for-young-kids and then there's the Kenner Spiel, which is made for more sort of gamer-type games. Uh, and so that's really the award I get most excited about. But the winner of the regular Spiel des Jahres this year was uh, Code Names, which is a game we've talked about many, many times on this show. It's, it's certainly deserving, uh, accessible to, to young and old alike, really fun, brilliant, brilliant game um, designed by Vlado Chalazic. And uh, the Kenner Spiel, though is kind of controversial. Uh, there were some massive games, games that I hold in the pantheon of some of my favorite games of all time, including Pandemic Legacy, which you know, we had uh, Rob Davio on the show a while back talking about that game, hitting number one on the Board Game Geek rankings, and Time Stories, which is a game I rave about constantly. Both of those games were up against uh, another game called, oh my gosh, I don't even have it, um, hang on, called uh, Isle of Sky, uh, and guess what? Isle of Sky won. <laughs> Isle of Sky wow. from Chieftain to King. Uh, this is a game I haven't played yet. It's a Mayfair game. Uh, Mayfair Games published it, um, but what a massive upset. I think everyone expected Pandemic Legacy to win. Uh, Time Stories was... Uh, you know, it's a serious contender, but Isle of Sky comes out the winner uh, for the German awards. Uh, so I wanted to update people on that. Pretty surprised. I got to play that game now. If it's, you know, sometimes they make strange decisions there in Germany, <laughs> one could say. But but that's the best thing about the award is that now I think this is a game that you and I imagine many of our listeners that are into tabletop games hadn't maybe been aware of. And it went from, you know, if it were just a nominee, the chance of you being like, oh, I got to play that game, you know, like it's just on the list. But now it beat one of your current favorite games ever, it seems like, and, and Risk. Um, Not Risk, uh, Pandemic. Uh, yeah. Pandemic, sorry. Yeah, Pandemic. Uh, th- th- I mean, why haven't you ordered it already? <laughs> well, they announced them this morning, so uh, or late, late, late last night, uh, your, your time. Uh, I just I, I'm bummed. I think Rob Davio deserves the, to win. Um you know, obviously friend of the show, so I'm kind of pulling for him, but, uh, I, I know he was there present for the award ceremony, but, um, I mean, I know that his game is selling very well. It still is an incredible experience. I highly recommend, but definitely want to try Isle of Sky. Uh, maybe, maybe part of that decision was the fact that they wanted to highlight a game that was a little less known. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe it's that good. We'll find out. Uh, Greg, you have played some board games. 
We have lost Uh-oh. Greg momentarily. He uh, texted me and said his computer decided to uh, try to log into Pokemon Go, apparently, and it went night night. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I will. Uh, I will talk about Scythe, uh, which is a game uh, I was going to talk about last week and had to push, but uh, I talked in depth with the designer of Scythe, Jamie Stegmeier. Uh, in the bonus content for this episode. So you definitely want to listen to that because it's a fascinating discussion. He is a brilliant designer. Uh, He has designed uh, Euphoria and um, Viticulture. And uh, these are games, these are European style games uh, that have very interesting, dense mechanics, um, worker placement games, generally speaking. Scythe, I would describe as sort of a, if... Settlers of Catan and Risk had a baby. It would be Scythe. So you're, the, the game takes place in a uh, alternate history 1920s with sort of mechs and steampunk stuff. Really cool uh, vision of, of that past. And it has amazing art. And um, it has... Uh, it, it, everybody plays a different faction and you have a sort of a hero character that is you and a, a, like an animal companion. And that hero char- character can do certain things, but you're also controlling armies and trying to take over parts of the land. Sort of like in Risk, you're moving into certain areas and you can move in with, with your armies, but you can also move in with workers and like Settlers of Catan, find certain resources on those tiles that you then can use to level up. Or not level up, but, you know, do certain things and get points. Money in this game is points. And the game has some really, really interesting mechanics, one of which is the combat system. So what you're doing is you're earning power in the game, which you then can spend in fights. So you get into a combat situation with another player. Let's say you move onto a square that they're already occupied, and you initiate combat. You both can see how much power you have to spend, but... Uh, on the on the board as how much you've earned right up to that point. But you have these little um, rotating discs that let you select how much power you're going to spend in this particular fight. And then you can also augment that with hidden cards that the other player can't see. So they know how much you have to spend. They just don't know how much you're going to spend. So there's a bit of a bluff situation where you can force a very powerful player to spend more power than they needed to to beat you, or you can try to you know, beat them by overspending your power. It's a really interesting concept, and it really makes it so that the person with the most power doesn't necessarily win. They, they, it, Is your power deplete like after you yes, use it, you or does it, it every turn you have? You spend okay. it in, in, in fights, and then there's other things that can cost power as well. So it's constantly fluctuating. Um, the other interesting mechanic is like how you do actions in the game. You have a, everybody has a personal little board in front of them that's separated into four quadrants and each of those quadrants has a top action and a bottom action. What you do on your turn is you select which quadrant you're going to do on your turn. And then you can either do the top action, the bottom action, or both. And you find your and the bottom actions are usually more expensive to do. They require having resources. So you find yourself in these positions, or at least I did, of when I picked a quadrant, wanting to maximize that move by being able to do both actions. And so trying to set myself up in previous turns to have all of the resources I need to do the bottom action as well. And you're constantly moving things and adding, um, adding 
new costs or removing certain costs from doing things through the course of the game. So there's this ecosystem of resources that's happening on the board that allows you to do more and more actions throughout the game. And you're trying to earn these stars, which uh, move toward the end of the game where the, the person with the most money wins. Uh, I don't know if I've done a very good job of describing it. <laughs> it's a very complicated game that ends up really, after you've dived into it, feeling much simpler and more streamlined than at, at first it appears because there are some really interesting mechanics that might seem a little overwhelming. This is not a first game for anybody, I think, but we quickly picked it up and I had a blast playing it. The The miniatures are really cool. You have these cool mechs and, and all that, you know, everything's three-dimensional and really neat looking, high quality components, really, really fun game. It's called Scythe. It's from Stonemeyer Games. Um, how long is a playthrough? Well, your first playthrough is going to be a little longer. Uh, also, I've never seen a game do this. And I, I talked to Jamie about this, uh, in the interview. It, it gives you a, a card at the beginning of the game that suggests your first five or six moves. And I think that's a hmm. really interesting way to, to kind of alleviate the, the worry of learning a game. Cause it's like, just do these five things for your first five turns and you'll be fine. And by the time your five turns in, you go, Oh, I, I kind of get it now. Um, and I think that's really smart. But yeah, your first your first playthrough is probably going to be a few hours, two or three. Uh, but you know, I think the game is probably about ninety minute to two hour long experience uh, for a little more experienced players. It sounds expensive. Is it an expensive uh, one? I think it's like sixty seventy bucks. So it's pretty typical. It's not yeah. too bad. Uh, yeah. It was a big Kickstarter. It raised over one point eight million dollars on Kickstarter. Uh, yeah. Wow! And it was a big success on Kickstarter, as all his games have been. Um, and he's doing a legacy game coming up. He's going to do a game called Charterstone. That's a legacy game. Um, but yeah, fascinating interview and I, a game I highly, highly recommend. It's called Scythe. Hmm. Well, I'm going to uh, leave my family for a day, dive into raw data when I can uh, move no more and my joints no longer work. I will mosey my way over to your beautiful dining room table. And <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, I will then move over to your couch in front of your 4K TV <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryson in the in the chat says he just got his collector's edition of Scythe. He said his first playthrough was two and a half hours, and uh, the quoted time on the box is 115 minutes. Greg, you have been playing a couple of board games this week. Is that right? Yes, that is right. The, uh, the big one I want to talk about that... So I feel conflicted about this because I had a lot of fun playing it, but... I had issues with the character motivation of the of the game. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> no, that's great. I love it. You're, you're talking about Cinelix now, right? No, yeah, that's exactly right. No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about Forbidden Island, which is a very fun... Uh, it's sort of like a combination of card and board game where you are on an island that is slowly sinking. Mm-hmm. And your goal is to get a bunch of treasures... You work together as a team to get these random treasures before the island sinks completely and you all die. Right. And there are cards, there are tiles you pull that like uh, uh, you flip certain tiles and that means they're flooded and you can't go on them. And each game piece has a specific skill that gives you different kinds of powers and unique abilities, which is really fun. And it's everyone working together towards a common goal, which is maybe the theme of this episode, which is really fun. <laughs> but... I took a little umbrage with the fact that the only thing motivating us is the greed and the lust of treasure. 
Like, I feel like if I'm on an island and I find out that it is slowly sinking into the ground and if we don't get to the helicopter pad immediately, we're going to drown and die. My first reaction isn't, oh, no, I got to get the treasure before. My reaction is, oh, boy, I got to get off this island before I die. <laughs> well, that's because you're not Indiana Jones. That's a good point. Or right? Indiana Drake Jones, or he, you know, he goes back in to get his hat because that's yeah. how awesome Indiana Jones is. That's a really good point. I think I'm probably being a little oversensitive. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it, it does seem it seemed a little odd to me that that is the reason not like we're finding tools for survival or we're finding a way to not make the island flood. I think the idea here would, would maybe, maybe, if you need, you know, psychological reasoning, it, <laughs> it, it may be that if the island sinks, all of these precious treasures will sink along with them. And this is a way to save all of these amazing uh, historical relics. That's a good point. It's the uh, it belongs in a museum argument, which yeah. I like. Yeah. I don't know. But did you have fun playing the game? I had a lot of fun playing the game. I played it at a 4th of July party, and it took us a while to get through the uh, instructions. But once we kind of got through how the game worked and the mechanics and what each sort of individual player does, I had a lot of fun playing it. And it's really fun to strategize and team build and to like figure out who should go where. And uh, it's, 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 like, uh, it's like a group puzzle in the best way possible. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great. Uh, this is designed by Matt Leacock. He also uh, did an, sort of an updated, reimagined version called Forbidden Desert, oh. which I think is even, even a little better, a little more streamlined. And uh, great, a great game for even young players, I would say. I gave Forbidden Desert to my 10-year-old nephew as a Christmas present. Uh, I highly recommend these games. Excellent, excellent cooperative games. Um, but you also played a game uh, that I think I probably would describe as uh, like uh, movie guessing meets Scrabble. A little bit. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way to pitch it, I think, with a little bit of like six degrees of Kevin Bacon thrown in for good measure. Uh, it's a very fun, independently made game called Cinelinks that uh, I was a Kickstarter backer of from the beginning, and it's a card game, and you have various cards that have uh, famous actors, directors, movies, genres, quotes, and uh, characters. I, I don't think I'm forgetting anything. And you put, you put them uh, on the table in front of you, and you're trying to create, uh, as the game is called, cinematic links. So, like, for example, if I put down the card The Big Lebowski, and the person I'm playing with had the Coen brothers in their hand, they would put that down, and they would say, the Coen brothers directed The Big Lebowski. And if you have the Coen brothers now on the table, and let's say that I have... Tom Cruise in my hand. I would put Tom Cruise next to the Coen brothers and I could say the Coen brothers directed Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading. Brad Pitt is an interview with a vampire with Tom Cruise. You can like make these links up to, I think, three or four uh, uh, different steps. And I'm a huge movie trivia minutia dork. And so to combine this dorkitude with my love of board games and stuff like that, it's it's really fun, and it really makes you think and kind of uh, plumb the depths of your pop culture knowledge. And I just – I have an absolute blast playing this game. Yeah, and you sort of end up with this like mosaic of cards down on the, on the table creating this weird, you know, sort of crossword puzzle-esque scene, right? Yeah, it, uh, it, it kind of 
it activates the left and right sides of the brain kind of nicely with this sort of logician's way of doing it. Did you like the idea, the the ability to do those uh, second and third degree links, and not have to do a first degree link uh, when you were playing it, or did you feel like that? Ma- do you feel like that made it too easy or too difficult or anything in between? You know, I do enjoy it. I, I will say that sometimes it gets me kind of stuck in my head a little bit to just mm-hmm. sit there and think to myself, "Gosh, I know I can make Benicio del Toro link to Kate Blanchett." But now I have to like stop the game flow to think for five minutes about all the various steps. Right. Whereas if it was just a first link thing, I think it would be, it would flow a little better perhaps. But with the second and third degree links allowed, what happens is after you're done, um, the cards via Wi-Fi send a signal to big Hollywood studio head boss guy and they make that movie. Like that's what you're doing is you're just pitching. You're in a pitch room and when you're done, they're like, okay, Del Toro directing Kate Blanchett and a movie about raising a kid and go. And then someone's writing it. So congrats. And I have not seen one residual scent from it. <laughs> so. Welcome to Hollywood, baby. Yeah, baby. So again, that game is called Cinelinx. Yes, L-I-N-X with an X at the end. Because it's extreme. That's right. Uh, All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. We do have our parting gift coming up. Don't want to miss that. And also really fun bonus content interview. Uh, So stick around. But, um, man, I do want to thank Greg Smith for being here. Greg, it was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. Uh, Where can people follow your exploits on the Internet? Oh, sure. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at SmithLGreg, L L as in Lawrence, my middle name. Uh, I have a really fun, dorky musical comedy duo. We're called Mudville Comedy. You can check us out at mudvillecomedy.com. We've got a lot of fun uh, videos and songs, and we just put out a video about Pokemon Go. They're so good, you guys. They're so good. Thanks, man. Uh, if you're going to be in Austin around Labor Day weekend, Mudville's actually playing the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival that Saturday. Great festival. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And if you're in New York City the first weekend of August, my uh, UCB musical team that I'm a writer and performer of is playing the New York Musical Festival. So you're going to come see some very funny, silly, irreverent musical comedy. I think we're the only comedy block in the festival. So if you're in New oh, that's York, awesome. check it out. Very cool. Yeah. Christian, what do you got going on this week? I am going to be in San Diego this weekend. Um, Comic-Con adjacent. I'll probably do some conning. I uh, perhaps foolishly agreed to (laughs) do a weekend at the Madhouse Comedy Club down there before realizing that it was Comic-Con weekend. Like I booked this months ago and then i was like what did i do um (laughs) there's so much going on in san diego this weekend i don't maybe i'll be wrong maybe the shows are going to be fantastic um i always i'm gonna expect the worst kind of guy i guess maybe oh that's sad um but i'll be (laughs) i'll be at the madhouse comedy club this weekend and then um doing some comic-con stuff too as yet to be determined but if you're in san diego and you need to take a break from the floor or you're looking for someone just to say hi to say hi to me i will not be in cosplay but i always uh welcome the hellos and then you can uh, head over to the YouTube, which is youtube.com slash christianspicer713 to see all of my Twitch um, streams archived as well, along with the Marriage Is sketches, the short comedic things on marriage. And, uh, Are there really 712 other Christian Spicers on, on YouTube already? Because that seems <laughs> like a lot. Well, there was one other one on YouTube already within a, uh, a 
page that had long been dormant. And I started going through and like taking off all these videos I made before I started doing comedy that were like, just dumb, like, you know, whatever. And I was like, I'm just starting a new page. <laughs> so 713 is the Houston area code is where, is where that comes from. And the other one is just like, this the the word. I think I've made everything private. It's so dumb. <laughs> um, and I do you know it's bad when you have to just do the scorched earth philosophy. <laughs> just, oh, new, new art, new, new new thing. And I add the numbers. Like it's worth having the numbers on it. You know. <laughs> God, I hope it's all private. I hope no. <laughs> Uh, I do a parenting podcast called Department of Parenting. You can find that at departmentofparenting.com. Jeff, uh, how are things? You guys did a new video, We Have Concerns, last week. Is that right? We did. Yeah, you can check that out at uh, youtube.com slash wehaveconcernsshow. Uh, also, the We Have Concerns audio podcast uh, is uh, is a delight, I've, I've heard. So please give it a chance. Uh, it is uh, 20 minutes of your time. Pretty easy, and I guarantee at least one laugh every episode, uh, and that is at wehaveconcerns.com. I also do a movie review podcast called The Slash Filmcast. We're going to be talking about Ghostbusters this week. Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters. Uh, so uh, check that out at slashfilmcast.com, and always my uh, CNET video show about technology is called Tomorrow Daily. Had a fun episode last week where we got to visit an artist who made a hamster-powered Hamster drawing machine, machine that draws a hamster picture. It's powered by hamsters. Of so course, hamsters drawing hamsters. It's hamsters all the way down. Uh, <laughs> so uh, check that out at tomorrowdaily.com. All right, guys, let's do it. Let's wrap the show up with our parting gifts. Hey, give us a suggestion. Greg, do you have something uh, to recommend for people to get them through their week? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I am a huge movie fan, and I you only like huge go... movies. That's right. I only go see movies that are two and a half hours <laughs> on the IMAX screen, uh, and I get a huge tub of popcorn. Uh, <laughs> I love going to the theaters. I try to go as often as I can. And one movie that I saw recently, uh, it just captured my heart. I just loved it to pieces. It's called Hunt for the Wilder People. I'm dying to see this. Yeah. It is excellent. It's uh, it's made by one of the funniest comedic filmmakers working today, Taika Waititi. Mm-hmm. He's a New Zealand guy. He made he and Jermaine Clements made this amazing movie called What We Do in the Shadows, which is also excellent. Yes, uh, indeed. So funny. This film is shot and takes place in New Zealand. It is about a hip-hop-obsessed uh, foster kid and this very gruff, uh, uh, terse kind of uh, a nature person, person who likes being out in nature alone, played by Sam Neill. And it's about an unlikely bond that they form. And this movie is really funny, as should be expected from the director. It's very stylish. There's a lot of really fun shots and edits and stuff like that. And it has a great soundtrack. But what really got me uh, and my big, softy, sentimental heart is just how lovely and quietly touching it is. There's a moment at the end... Uh, there's a running theme involving poetry, and I don't want to say anything other than that, but there's a moment at the end where someone reads a poem that I think is the benchmark for, like, tear-inducing moments in the movies this year. Uh, I can't recommend this movie enough. I loved it, and I think y'all will love it, too. It's called Hunt for the Wilder People, and it's in theaters now. 
Yeah. Christian, how about you? What have you got for a parting gift? Yeah, so as as much disclosure as possible, right? You don't I don't want to run afoul of the disclosure police. I, I feel like we do a very good job of that on this show. But um the fine people, I don't know if they're fine or not. I I don't know. Uh the people at Kef, they are a speaker company, high-end speaker uh gear, sent me one of their newer Bluetooth uh speakers. It is the Moo M-U-O. I don't know how you say it. Meow, Moo, Moo. Muo? I think so. Muo. Um, this is how on brand. No, they they, uh, they sent me one to play with and to have fun with. And um, I'll tell you what, uh, it's hard to get me away from my Amazon Echo because it's, you know, I just yell at it and have it order dog food for me. But in terms of just like, doesn't need to be plugged in, portability. I brought it with us to our picnic yesterday to the park. This is the Kef Muo I'm talking about. I could be um, wrong on that pronunciation, but I think... I'm going with it, Jeff. It's yeah. too late. I'm, I'm in right. it deep. I got a tattoo on my back. And that's the pronunciation, not the letters, like the you know dictionary pronunciation of it. <laughs> Phonetically spelled out. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. That's what I was going for. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful little speaker. I picked the Sunburst Orange one and... Um, I don't know. I'm not the biggest audiophile in the world. I do appreciate a nice pair of headphones and I do appreciate good sound. And to my untrained ear, this thing sounds better than my Echo. I also have a little Sony sound dock um, kind of Bluetooth thing that we use in my daughter's room to play music and stuff like that. It blows both of them out of the water. It's loud. It's not overly bassy, which some people might hate. I personally am not a big bass person. Unless you, I'm not. Unless you play Count Basie. Then well, then I'm all about that bass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm not a Beats by Dre. That's not the type of audio I prefer. Thing seems well made. The only thing that I wish it had um, is like a little carrying case. Like it's, you know, small enough that I'm going to bring it with me on the road to like have good sound in the hotel room. And I wish there was some form of something I could throw it in before I threw it in my bag. Um, Supposedly but, they don't uh, have those cases, right? That's what I heard. Supposedly they're, they, I guess they're out in Europe, but not here or whatever. It doesn't help me any, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I dig it. I think if you're looking for like a premium Bluetooth speaker, it's more expensive than like the crap you'll find at Target or Walgreens. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're buying something that is a, a, a well-made piece of audio equipment. I think you really dig it. Check it out. I'm sure there are better reviews than that out there, but, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And it's kind of my new, it's in my go bag with my iPhone camera, tripod, 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 my iPad mini. It's like in my tech go bag. And I've been, that's when, been enjoying that's for it. when you play Pokemon go and Hitman go and Lara Croft go and you go see the movie go and you play, well, I'm playing the soundtrack from go, go. and yeah, I'm playing the soundtrack from go. And again, it was, it was given circle. to me. Full circle. It was given to me. I did not pay for it, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. So well, maybe got, you might be interested. I got something you can play on that Bluetooth speaker. Christian, for my um, uh, my little parting gift, listening. I, I know a lot of people wanted me to to say Stranger Things as my parting gift, but guess what? Everybody's talking about Stranger Things. You don't need me to parting gift Stranger Things because everybody's watching it. But I did uh, call out to the universe on Twitter, as one does, while playing Stranger Things. That my goodness, what I wouldn't give to spend one more day in the eighties because that that show is all about sort of being in the 80s and it made me nostalgic for being a young young baby boy in the 80s and just feeling like there was nothing that bad in the world <laughs> the so, 80s when there was nothing bad right. in the world <laughs> it just felt so nice in the 80s uh, also i was very young um, <laughs> And uh, a listener of the show reached out to me who has a band called The Midnight. And he said, if you love the 80s, you got to listen to my band. And I listened to the band. And my goodness, it is a love letter to the 80s. The Midnight, uh, they have an upcoming album. 
uh, and two singles have, have been released from it on the YouTubes. One is called Sunset and the other is called Vampires and they are both delightful. I think they have an old album called Days of Thunder, but uh, this new album that's, that's uh, forthcoming – Check these songs out. They are so good. They just feel good music. It's like put it on, roll down the windows, turn it up, and drive into the night. You know, it's sunset. And va- the, vamp- the song Vampires has like an extended saxophone solo like we used to get in the 80s. Ah, it's so good. And I can I can attest it sounds infinitely better coming out of a speaker in an IROC Z. So just if you have one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, there's a band called The Midnight, and the two songs that I listened to that really charmed me uh, are called Sunset, and the other one is called Vampires. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Uh, thanks to Greg Smith, Christian Spicer, for hanging out with me. Uh, thanks to all the folks in the chat room for hanging out and contributing to the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for downloading and spreading the word. We really appreciate that as well. Always appreciate those high rankings on iTunes or whatever your uh, platform of choice is. We will be back next week. We do have this uh, fun bonus content coming up, so stick around for that. But until next week, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. I'm here with Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemeyer Games. Uh, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, so thank you so much for the, the invitation to, to chat with you today, Jeff. Yeah, I had a chance to play uh, Scythe recently, uh, your newest game. Um, people probably know you from Viticulture and um, Euphoria, and uh, the, your company that you started uh, has had a lot of success on Kickstarter, and you've started publishing other people's games as well. That's right, yeah. Between Two Cities was the first game we published uh, by Ben Ross at Matthew O'Malley and some other designers. Yeah, I own uh, Between Two Cities. I was a Kickstarter backer, and I have enjoyed playing that game thoroughly. It's a, it's a lot of fun. What was, the, what was the choice in sort of um, starting to branch out and, and take on other, public or other uh, designers' games to publish? Well, a big part of it is that I kind of have realized my limitations as a designer, both in terms of my my limitations on my time and limitations on my skill set. And I, I think I, I have a pretty good grasp of like midway Euro games, but doing a really light streamlined 20 minute large group game is not my forte. Hmm. And so for a while I was specifically looking for that type of game and Ben and Matthew just happen to have one. Yeah, it's cool. It fits the bill. It, it's a great uh, uh, filler that doesn't feel like a filler. It feels right. a little weightier than a filler. It's great. Um, but let's talk a little bit about you and how, how you started. I know that you ha- say uh, on your Twitter profile that you've been designing games since you were a kid. Yeah. Um, but Viticulture uh, came out not too long ago. Uh, what was the process in actually publishing your first game? Well, a big part of the early motivation was Kickstarter itself. I was, I was just really fascinated with Kickstarter. This was back in like 2012, 2011 when I started paying attention to it. And... I just love the idea of creating something and putting it on Kickstarter and having these one-on-one interactions with people who share my passion for it. And so once I had that early motivation, I was like, okay, I really want to create something. And game design has always been a, a hobby and a passion of mine. So, so they seemed, uh, and, and at the time, certain games were starting to do well on Kickstarter. So I thought, okay, this is the time to, to maybe give that a try. 
So how did you come to game design as a young person? Uh, you know, it's hard exactly to say. I, I remember I, I played a lot of games when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Um, I started getting exposed to certain games, and almost right away I, I wanted to create them as well. You know, sometimes that just happens with something where you you consume some sort of content, and you're like, okay, this is this really connects with me. I want to I want to create this type of content as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that board games in particular, it feels like everybody that falls in love with them goes, oh man, there's a board game in me somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are you know there's a difference between everybody feeling that and then actually doing it. Yeah, I've I've realized that in my adult years, uh, especially as a kid, I would design a game, and back then I thought the designing game a game was just writing down the rules and building the board or the cards and the components, and then it was done. But I've realized, you know, as an adult, that there is so much more that goes into game design than just having that idea and typing up some rules. All the play testing, the, the development, the the all the production aspects that go into it. There's a lot more to it. And I've found, fortunately, that I've really enjoyed that process. Well, let's talk a little bit about Scythe because I think, uh, you know, I, Viticulture is a, is a great game. It's a game about winemaking, and it's a game that I enjoy very much. But um, it certainly, I think, is a much more, um, forgive the term, but maybe conventional worker placement game. It, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like a lot of mechanics were invented for that game. It, it, it uses them well. But I feel like Scythe, you really introduce mechanics that I've not seen ever before in any game. Um, so I feel like it, it was a much more ambitious project that way. Uh, can you talk about the inspiration for Scythe and how you sort of came to that project? Yeah, and thank you for saying those nice things about it. I appreciate that. Um, my, my original exposure to the world of Scythe was um, when I discovered uh, the artist and world builder, a guy named Jacob Rolzalski. He had his art featured on a website called Kotaku, mm-hmm. and I it just immediately captured my my imagination and made me want to design a game in that world. So I contacted Jacob and asked him if he was open to the idea of me designing a game in this world that he was just starting to build at that point. I think he had maybe 10 or a dozen pieces of artwork at that point, and he was receptive to the idea, and we ended up... You know, I was in charge of the game design side of it, but the the world that he was creating and the art had a huge impact on it. So there, were, we had a lot of back and forth conversations to make sure that the two were complementary throughout the whole process. So I know a lot of I've heard a lot of designers hate the question about mechanics mm-hmm. or theme, which comes first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like in this case, it was a fusion of those. You were really trying to create something that encapsulated that idea. So you know, for people that might not be familiar, this is set in an alternate history 1920s, uh, sort of uh, almost like a steampunk, World War One-esque uh, Europe, right? Right, yeah. It's based, uh, the, the early form of it, uh, which is Jacob's 1920s world, is based on a little war that happened between Poland and Russia. Uh, I think Russia was, it was after World War One, and Russia was kind of encroaching back onto Europe to try to, to take, you know, kind of a land grab. And Poland stood up against them uh, while the rest of Europe was kind of beaten down after World War I. And so Jacob is Polish. He's very passionate about Polish heritage and history. And so he started to build this world based off of that one war. And then when I came in, I, I, I didn't really want to make a two-player game that would be you know, Poland versus Russia. So I asked him if he was open to bringing in some other factions and building up the story a little bit more. And he, uh, he came back with some, some great ideas that you can see in the final version. There are five total factions now. 
Yeah, yeah. It, uh, and each faction, you, you control a, um, a sort of hero character that mm-hmm. is this person matched with a animal uh, sidekick, right? Right, yeah. We wanted that. We wanted it to make a player feel like they were kind of a, almost a first-person perspective where, where you're walking around this world and experiencing it. One of the things in the game, one of the mechanisms are the encounter cards that you draw. And when you draw an encounter card, there's text on it that tells you like your choices, but there's also a big illustration there that essentially shows you what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to give players that experience of, of you know, walking through the, this world, discovering it as you go through your own eyes and through the eyes of, of your character. So are you in the situation now where you, you know, you're a fan of Jacob's work, you're, you are designing this world, and you get to be the person that tells him, like, okay, now I need a piece of art with you know, this Russian army attacking this Polish army or, or whatever it is. You know, you're, you're kind of giving him prompts now to create new pieces of art for the game. Yeah, that was, it, it was, uh, that was a learning process because I wanted to very much respect his vision and his artistic talent, which is immense and well beyond anything that I would ever really want to direct. But I did try to steer him every now and then. Um, for example, as I mentioned, the, his original concept was just about Poland and Russia. Mm-hmm. And from his perspective as someone in a uh, Polish background and heritage, the Russians were the bad guys. And I wanted... In the game, I wanted every faction and every character to have good and bad sides. I didn't want there to be a clear bad guy. Right. Um, I wanted that to happen through the gameplay. Like maybe when you play the game, maybe the Russian character is more aggressive or the Saxon character is more aggressive, but not to have it preset. And so I, I would steer Jacob in that direction a little bit, and he was very receptive to that. That's really cool. I, I want to dig into the mechanics of the game a bit because I'm... I'm so curious as to how that design process went. Uh, the The player board with mm-hmm. the, the two levels of actions that you can do and the and the four quadrants that you have to decide between on your turn. Mm-hmm. Where did that mechanism come from, and how did you iterate on that? What was that process like? It went through a, a lot of changes over the course of the game design. The very early versions of the game were very card driven, so you were kind of building this kind of an army, but not all the units were fight, fighting or combat units. And you're building these cards. It was For a while, it was a deck-building game, and then the cards kind of stacked on top of one another. And once it got to that point where they were kind of stacking, I found that I was less interested in the stacking and more interested in... Uh, they started to look basically like the, the player board looks now. And so I moved away from the cards and evolved and moved more towards the player board and a big part of that, too, was the influence that Terra Mystica has had on me. Have you played Terra Mystica, Joe? Uh, yeah, I own it, and I, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And, and the thing about Terra Mystica, there's, you, know, you have this beautiful player mat, and uh, you're, you're often taking things off the player mat to put on the board. And when you do so, you're revealing something new, some new form of income that you're getting. And usually there's a, there's a push and pull. Like you're putting something on the board, but by doing so, you're taking something off the board and putting it back on your player mat. Yeah. It's a very rewarding game. Like you're always feeling like you're advancing. And so I wanted to capture that in the player mat inside. I, I wanted you to feel like everything you do on that player mat is good and it's moving you forward in some way. Yeah, I definitely had that feeling in playing it. It, it reminds me of Eclipse a little bit as well, mm-hmm. uh, that, that feeling of moving things around and sort of creating my little ecosystem in front of me that's different from the player to my left and right. Um, 
but sort of as you said, it, every option is equally um, interesting and and desirable. I'm, I'm there's 20 things I want to do on my turn, <laughs> which is which is great. I think that's the the best kind of you know Euro game is when all the options are attractive. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think one of the tough things about designing a Euro game when you do have that that bevy of options is not uh, getting a player caught up in analysis paralysis. Right. Yeah. And that's why the player maps are pretty streamlined. Like you, whatever set, there are only four sections on there and the section that you chose the previous turn, you can't choose that section again. So you really only have three options, but within those options are many smaller options to make. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Scythe, when I sat down to play it, it certainly felt very complex, but very quickly it, it, simplified in my mind and it became a very clear game very fast and i think you know, probably one of the dangers and one of the challenges that you face is um overwhelming players with these systems because the systems are you know appear very complex and mm-hmm. i'm sure that uh rules writing is the is a big challenge i'd never seen a game use uh a um a player aid that that advised me for my first five turns before. I thought that was a brilliant thing to do. It really alleviated a lot of that pressure of the beginning of the game of like, okay, what do I even do now? <laughs> you know, I thought that was really yeah. smart. Thank you. I, I would say a major motivation for me for that was, was not just, um, it was mainly like if, if you've already learned the game, like you know how to play size now, but I want you to feel, uh, I don't want you to feel worried about introducing it to someone new. And so now you kind of have this little card that you can give someone when you're teaching them that you can just say, okay, just follow this for a few minutes. Like, don't, don't worry about everything. Just follow this. And I, because sometimes I think for me, there are games that I really, really love, but they're complex and I don't necessarily want to spend an hour teaching it to someone new when I could play it with a few people who already know the rules. Right. I didn't want that to happen with Scythe. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because one of those things, it's like, just concentrate on six of the 10 things. It's like, what? That just sounds so overwhelming. (laughs) But then once you start playing it, you get, Oh, okay, I get it. And and having that sort of advised, you know, down a few turns. So it's like, get a few turns into the game before you even worry about working on a goal. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very smart, but can you talk a little bit about the challenge of rules writing and, and about making a game that, that seems as complex and has such intricate mechanisms as size, uh, accessible. Yeah, the, the rules writing, um, the process I usually go through is like the first time I ever make a prototype, um, I, at the same time, either before or after or during, I'm writing the first set of rules at that point too. And often just by writing the rules, I figure out a lot of things that don't, don't make sense or that could easily be confused. And so from the very beginning that's happening, the, the rules of side probably went through 30 or 40 iterations over the scope of early playtesting and blind playtesting. And I would say the blind playtesting part, which is when I send the game out to people around the world um, and they, they playtest the game without me looking over their shoulder, uh, that really helped because throughout that process, especially the first wave of blind playtesting, those playtesters just had a ton of questions for me about the rules that were confusing. So what appeared to me to be a very clear rule set inevitably with the first wave of blind playtesting ends up getting a ton of clarifications. And so that's, I think, that heavily contributed to the final version of the rules. That's so fascinating. I had a professor in college who used to say, uh, you know, 
while you're studying this stuff, try teaching it to a friend who's not in our class. Mm-hmm. And you'll learn what you don't know as you're going. I, I, I think that's interesting. It kind of applies here. You know, as you are expressing the rules, you're learning about your own game. Oh, totally. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly why I start writing those rules so early. That's so cool. Um, the the combat system too feels very fresh and interesting. And I wonder how you came to that. Uh, it, it really feels like it almost emphasizes the threat of combat as much as combat itself. That is perfectly said. That, that's exactly what we were aiming for. And that realization came to me. So like throughout the design process, I had all of Jacob's work, all of his art for the game, just plastered to the wall of my, uh, my office. And whenever I'd have, whenever I'd, stumble upon a design issue, I would look at the art and say, you know, what, how can I capture the feeling that I get when I look at this art? How can I capture it in the game? And something I realized, because combat went through a ton of different versions, um, something I realized about midway through that process was, in Jacob's art, even though there are these giant threatening mechs and soldiers often, they're not actually fighting all that much in the art. They're there they're, they're a presence, but they're not, they're not actually fighting. And so when I realized that, I was like, okay, well, this game, it's not as much about combat as I originally thought. Really, it's just, as you said, about the threat of combat and the interactions between um, your little empire that you're building and how they support combat. Yeah, it, it, it really works well, that, that power system as a resource that you mm-hmm. spend. And it's not even that you spend, it's that you can force other people to spend by bluffing them into overspending. Mm-hmm. That push and pull is so fascinating and how you can have a character that appears to be very powerful become very, you know, unpowerful very quickly. And, and those twists of fate, I, I found that to be so fun and such a interesting part. You know, uh, anyway, I'll let you respond to that first. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to hear that. That's exactly what I was going for. Um, I wanted you to feel in control of what you put into combat, both in terms of the amount of power you spend and the number of units that you bring into combat. Um, but I definitely wanted that bluffing element to be a big part of it. Uh, because ideally, you know, you, you want to spend as little power as possible in combat. But if you spend too little, then your opponent might, even if they looked weaker going into combat, they might spend all of their power and actually win a combat that you thought you had control over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it works so well. And, and um, I, I hope that this doesn't uh, oversimplify the game. But you know, a lot of our audience is uh, a little more casual on the board gaming scene. And mm-hmm. I've described uh, Scythe as uh, if Risk and Settlers of Catan had a baby. Uh, it was much more interesting than that, I think. But uh, the thing that's so cool is that it takes Risk, the sort of Risk-esque, like, let's just bowl into each other and I'm more powerful than you and I'm going to roll dice and just bowl you over. And it completely right. subverts that. And, and it becomes such an interesting power play of the of positioning and overextending and the fact that I can abandon resources against my will and all that stuff. It, it It's such a more interesting area control idea because of the, the fragile nature of power. Well, thank you. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I think one of the key parts of, that I realized throughout blind play testing was that there's a star at the, at the top of the power track. So if you've managed to build, like, there's always that star that you're that you're hoping to get, but and so that kind of encourages you to spend fewer power in each combat, so that you don't move away from that star. 
Yeah. Um, so once we, re- that's one of those little things that we realize in blind playtesting with that, having that star there makes a huge difference. Yeah, and that star system as a method of ending the game I found interesting because, you know, in the in the first, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes of playing, it feels like, oh my God, we're never going to, this game is <laughs> never going to end. But it, it definitely feels like that hockey stick on the graph of, you know, closer to the end, these stars start coming, you know, quickly. In fact, the, the first playthrough we did, uh, I ended the game by getting two stars in one move um, oh, wow. because I had a, you know, a, one of those hidden objective cards that I was able to do by doing something that got me another star. But uh, um, it, it, that method of ending the game, do you, do you encounter any kind of resistance from people feeling like, oh my God, I can't keep track of all these 10 things? Or was there any worry about that? Um, in terms of being able to track all the different things, uh, you know, I haven't heard a lot about that. I, I can see that being a little overwhelming, especially for the first play when you're trying to get, get a hang of it. Yeah. The, the main thing, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, is that I found often that players on their first turn, the first game, they try to do a little bit of everything. Right. And then the game really can take a long time because they have like two of everything instead of four of some things and zero of another. Right. Um, so it is a game where you're trying to balance these different systems. But, uh, but I do recommend to players that they really start to focus on spe- getting, getting good at specific paths and following those paths to end the game. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Kickstarter in general because uh, Stonemaier Games has been very successful. I think what uh, Scythe raised, what, $1.8 million? Yeah, $1.8 million. Pretty yeah. awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, your site actually has a, a, is an amazing resource just for how-tos and advice on how to run a great Kickstarter campaign. Uh, Kickstarter has been a big theme on our show, uh, comparing it between video game worlds and board game worlds. Or it seems like the video game world is very is fraught with terrors. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of problems, and the board game world seems to have figured it out. Um, you know, I won't ask you to recap all the stuff on your site, but maybe some reasons why you think that that might be the case. Yeah, you know, I, I've wondered about that myself, uh, especially the the board game to video game comparison. Um, and I think honestly, I think a big part of it is that uh, backers on Kickstarter now are. are a pretty savvy bunch, especially within the board game world. And they can tell when a game has actually been fully designed and play tested. And when it's, they can tell that it's pretty close to being sent to the printer. Mm-hmm. Um, and with video game. And, and the nice thing about that is you can, you can design a board game from start to finish up until the point of manufacturing for a fairly low expense, right? You know, it's pencil and paper essentially. And then you have to hire an artist and a graphic designer. Um, but with video games, a, a huge part of that expense comes after you have the money to actually pay for that stuff, to pay right. for all the, you know, the, the user interface and the, all the development that goes into it. Um, even I think the most savvy developer often needs a lot of other software programmers to help them build a pretty, a pretty big game or at least a partner or two that they have to pay. And so I think that's the biggest difference where with like board games, they're often ready to print at the point of funding Whereas video games are just starting to ramp up into development and there's a lot of uncertainty that happens at that point, you know, where they think it might take six months, but it actually takes two years and costs considerably more than they thought it would. Yeah, I think that's spot on. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so Kickstarter is, is really the difference between your company being able to make games and not make games, right? I mean, it's, it, it's the reason that Stonemaier exists, right? 
Yeah, fortunately, we're, we're, we've gotten to the point now um, where our, our cash flow is healthy enough that we are not as reliant on it. But for Scythe, for example, we probably could have made a small print run of Scythe without raising any money. Mm-hmm. But the benefit of putting it on Kickstarter is that we were able to really gauge the demand for it. And instead of making 3,000 copies of it, we made 26,000 copies, which people wanted. And so it's nice to be able to, to gauge that demand early and actually meet it. And certainly the component quality of Scythe is, is really, really impressive. I mean, I love all the, you know, the miniatures <laughs> and stuff. It's so cool. Oh, thank you. Um, we'll wrap this up. I just want to quickly ask you a little bit about Charterstone uh, because uh, legacy games uh, are, are really fun and, and really exciting, but I imagine uh, open up a whole new raft of difficulties from a design point of view. What's the process been like making a legacy game? It's been it's been a challenge. It's been a lot of fun, but it's also been a very different challenge. Um, with with when I'm designing any other game, a non-legacy game, there's always the point in playtesting where I feel like I'm really having fun with it, and I'm actually having you know just having fun sitting down and playing a game. But with Charterstone, I might get that way with one of one of the fifty packets that you unlock while you're playing it. Yeah. But then there are forty nine others that are on varying degrees of fun or that I haven't even opened yet because I have to play like 10 games before I even open packet number 20. Um, so it's been a very different process. Um, and I've learned you recently had Rob Davio on the show. I've learned so much from listening to him talk about, uh, his design process for, for various legacy games. So he's been a huge help. I'm just listening to his his input, his experiences. Yeah, he, he says, you know, that it's a, a crazy, crazy notion to create a game from scratch and then try to put make it a legacy game because you're just you're basically, you know, exponentially adding work to yourself as you're as you've described. Oh, yeah, um, yeah you really are. Do you have a, any kind of estimate as to when you think Charterstone might might go up on Kickstarter? Um, well, I, I think I, I think we're still looking at a 2017 release. I'm not actually sure if we're, we're going to put it on Kickstarter at all at this point. Um, oh, really? We might just uh, publish it. Um, we'll see if we actually do that. But it, it's uh, it's in the works. I, I have the, the prototype box that will be at Gen Con this year. People want to look at an empty box that will awesome. be there. Yeah. Empty boxes can be exciting. <laughs> sure. uh, well, I'm so glad you uh, you were here to talk about Scythe and, and the other games. I'm, I'm looking forward to Charterstone very much, but I just think the world of Scythe. It's a really, really cool game, and uh, I really appreciate you being here.
Just play.